1 Samuel chapter 4, hear the word of the Lord. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines! lest you become slaves of the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there also has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the movie, which is now kind of a classic, Raiders of the Lost Ark. There was the intrepid Indiana Jones and his sidekick, Marcus Brody. Well, the 
United States agents brought these archaeologist experts in, and they were asking them about this mysterious ark thing. And uh, Marcus Brody, when he was telling them about the ark, he said, The Bible speaks of the ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the ark before it is invincible. And then Indiana Jones points to an old drawing of the ark with these light shafts coming out. And the U.S. agent asks, what are those? And he explains that these are lightning bolts that are coming out from the ark and destroying the enemies. Well, in that movie, that was why, by the way, Adolf Hitler was looking for the ark because he thought that if he had possession of the ark, he had the super weapon that nobody could stand against. However, uh, he could have saved himself a great deal of effort if he had just read 1 Samuel chapter 4, because here is an army that has this weapon at its disposal, and it's an army that's beaten very, very badly. And that's really the story of chapter 4. Now, just a little bit of review. At the end of last year, beginning of this year, we did a series on the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, we learned about this ark. Now, this ark, what was it? It's not a word we use much. We think of ark oftentimes as the boat as well. It's a different word. But the ark was a chest. It was a rectangular chest uh, that was made of wood, and it was covered over with gold. And inside that originally were placed the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of the covenant, which we call the Ten Commandments. And then a couple other things were placed in there along the way as well. Uh, This ark, this chest, had a cover over it, which was known as the mercy seat or the place of propitiation or the place of offering. And this had two sculpted images of cherubim, which is some category of angel. And this box, this chest with these two angelic creatures was placed in the most holy place of the tabernacle, which was a tent, or the temple, which is a more permanent building. So there was the courtyard around it, and then there was the holy place, and the priests did something daily in the holy place. But then once a year, once a year, the high priest could go into the most holy place and would offer a sacrifice on the ark between these two cherubim on the mercy seat, the cover of the ark, in order to make atonement, to make sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. Now, this is described in a summary. If you'd like a summary of that, it's in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 9. And here, the writer to the Hebrews is reflecting on, and we'll get back to this later, reflecting on the meaning of all these things. And here's how the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 9, he sums it up. He said, now even the first covenant, referring to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, then later a tabernacle, The first section, in which were the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, 
and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And then he says, of these things we cannot speak in detail. But he then went on and he explained that once a year, as I mentioned, the high priest would go in and make atonement for the sins of the people on top of that, that Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was not a weapon of war. But interestingly, sometimes it appeared in situations that were battle-like situations. For example, if you go back to Numbers, Numbers chapter 10, uh, verses 33 to 36, as the people were traveling around in the desert, this is the description. It says, so they set out from the Mount of the Lord, Mount Sinai, three days journey, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them. Three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. This is kind of military language, isn't it here? And the ark is, is going out before them, symbolic, along with the cloud, of the presence of the Lord. <clears throat> and then if you recall, when they finish their wanderings in the desert, they get to the Jordan River, then they have a problem. They want to cross the Jordan River, but it's at flood stage. They can't do it. And so what do they do? The priests walk into the river carrying the ark. And what happens? The waters divide. And then they get to Jericho. And they're told to march around Jericho, and on the seventh day they march around Jericho with the ark, and what happens? The walls of Jericho fall. So you can kind of understand why they might think of this not only as a, a place to meet with God, but also as something having special power over God's enemies. Now, getting back to 1 Samuel, <clears throat> we find at the beginning of 1 Samuel that the ark was located in a place called Shiloh, and it says it was in the temple. Now, this is before Solomon's temple. So it looks like there was a temporary temple that we really don't know anything about. It, it, it existed. We don't know when it was built, by whom. We don't know what it looked like or anything. But the, the tabernacle, the tent, must have decayed. And this was before Solomon built the temple. But there was a, a structure there, a semi-permanent structure in Shiloh. Now, what we have seen so far in Samuel, if you haven't been along with us, there is a preparation for a change of leadership. Eli was the chief priest. He was the one in charge of the, the worship in the temple and, and the offerings. He had two sons who were corrupt, Hophni and Phinehas, and he could not or would not control them. And so God had raised up a new young man named Samuel, and he had revealed to Samuel that he was going to remove Eli, he was going to remove his sons, and eventually he was going to remove the entire line of Eli and move the priesthood to another line. And so now we have an interlude. So that's where we are. We have an interlude. We have the introduction of Samuel, and we learn at the end or at the beginning of this chapter, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Hit pause. Hit pause, because now we're going to go back and deal with Eli and Hophni and Phineas, and see how they end. So what do we have? We have the Philistines in verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. We don't know who started it. We don't know why they were fighting. But we do know 
that the Philistines were the main enemies of Israel and Judah from the time of Samson to the time of David. And so they were long-standing enemies. And these were people who were probably seafaring people. We don't know exactly where they came from, but they settled along the eastern Mediterranean coast to the west of Judah. So you have Judah, you have the Philistines, and then you have the sea. And to this day, we speak of the Palestinians. We speak of Palestine. That word comes from the Philistines. We say Palestinians. And also, one of their major cities is in the news today. One of their major cities was Gaza, and you've heard about the Gaza Strip. So this is a very ancient people, and the the conflicts go way back between them and the Israelites. Now, it doesn't say why they were fighting, but it does say that the battle did not go well. They encamped at Ebenezer, the Israelites, the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Philistines drew up in line against Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. This is, a, this is a wipeout. This is a terrible, terrible defeat. Now, there's a whole body of literature about big numbers in the Old Testament, because sometimes the numbers just seem too big. And are they, are they using the technique of exaggeration? There are some who suggest here that the word here for a thousand is some sort of a military term. Like that it says 4,000, maybe it's four troops or four battalions or something like that were wiped out. But however that might be, there was a wipeout of terrible defeat and more are going to be defeated later. Now the elders, the elders started well. The elders asked a question in verse 3. And what was the question? Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Interesting. They believed in God's sovereignty, didn't they? They said, this is the Lord's doing. They said, why has the Lord? They didn't say, why have the Philistines? They said, why has the Lord defeated us today? So they were seeing that the Lord had become their adversary here. And they asked, why is the Lord against us today? That's a very good question to ask. In time of disaster, they ask the question, why? Now, they actually had the answer at their fingertips, if they had only consulted it. If you go back to Deuteronomy, chapter 28, it's a section of blessings for faithfulness and curses for unfaithfulness. And if you look at verse 15, it says, but... After the section of blessing, it says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then if you go down to verse 25, it says, And the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. So they had the answer, didn't they? They they should have known. Why was the Lord against them? Because they had been unfaithful to the Lord. And so he turned to the other side and he caused them to be scattered. So what should the elders have done? They should have said, obviously we need to repent here. We need to repent. We need to turn back to the Lord. There's something wrong with our hearts. That's why the Lord's against us. Let's, let's repent, let's fast, let's pray, let's consider our ways, let's turn back to the Lord, let's read the scriptures. But what did they do? They proposed a technique instead. A technique. 
And what did they propose? They proposed that they go get the ark from Shiloh and bring it to the battle scene. Now, this is always a temptation. When something goes wrong, it's tempting to look for better techniques rather than better character. That's always a temptation for humans. Instead of looking inside and saying, is there something about me that, that, that need, that's amiss, that can be, that can be remedied, it's, it's tempting to look for better techniques. It's, it's easy for churches to do that, too. Read the next book on, on you know, how to do church and, and what's the, the, the latest technique to, to put into practice rather than looking at ourselves and our, our life before God. And here's what they did. They proposed using the ark as a weapon of war. Why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines and before waiting for an answer? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh. That it, or that could be translated, he, it or he, that it may come among us or that he may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. The people were in agreement. Verse 4, the people sent to Shiloh, brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now, um, it looks like they had seen and believed raiders of the lost ark, doesn't it? Because they thought, this is the super weapon. We're going to bring it in. And um, this, is, this is actually kind of a, a, a good warning for us. It's a good warning because it's always a danger to hold on to outward objects that are related to faith while denying the reality in our lives. You see, we look at the, the lives of Hophni and Phinehas, and they were, they were wretched lives. They were immoral lives. They were, they were basically bandits with the people of God. They were living terrible lives before the Lord, but they were in charge of the temple. They were in charge of the ark. And so here we have outward conformity to symbols of religion and yet a lack of reality in their lives. If you go to the pages of the New Testament, Jesus had some very gentle words for sinners, and he had some very, very strong words for those who were conforming outwardly to religious traditions but whose hearts were far from God. In Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And in fact, Paul described the last days as that being characteristic of in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days, which are these days in which we live since Christ has, has, has come, the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. He says, avoid such people. But in addition, prior to saying avoid such people, actually, even before that, don't be those people. Don't be those people. Don't be those who hold on simply to religious traditions and customs and forms. It's, it's typical, really, 
in, in our world for that to happen. We live in a world that, in the West that is increasingly post-Christian. And so there are many forms, there are many outward props and things that, that used to be a vital part of Christianity. And sometimes people are very devoted to those. I remember we were knocking on some doors around here, and we, we met a man, and we were trying to share the gospel with him, and, and he wasn't at all interested in the gospel. But he was trying to get me riled up about how people just don't celebrate Christmas like they used to anymore. And I wasn't at all interested in talking about what people do with this, this religious tradition. I wanted to talk to him about Christ. But he wasn't interested in Christ. But he was indignant about this this mistreatment of of Christmas, for example. You find many people who have adornment of of crosses around their necks or tattooed on their bodies or in their ears or whatever it might be, and yet no real connection to the meaning of the cross. Church buildings can inspire a great deal of devotion, even when the truth of the gospel hasn't been preached in that church building for decades. Even the sacraments. I was... uh, traveling with Sandy and Natalia, and we were out in the jungles of of Guatemala, this very remote place with this community table, and we sat down with people from all different places around the world, and we were with these these lovely young ladies from Denmark, and uh, we started talking about the gospel. And they were devoted to being baptized. They were devoted to being confirmed in their churches and so on, but they, they were not at all interested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. These were just cultural traditions that they had. I'm not saying all Danish people were that way, but these girls were, were very much devoted to the outward forms, and yet the reality they were explicitly denying. Now, the people and the priests complied with the elders' orders, and actually it looked like it was going to work. This devotion to, to this Ark of the Covenant as a kind of a, a, a magical charm, as a, a superpower object, and it looks like it was going to work. The ark comes into the camp. The people start cheering. The, the earth trembles under their cheering. And the Philistines say, oh, no. What happened? And they say, according to their pagan thinking, oh, a god has entered in. Because what the Israelites were doing is kind of pagan. The idea that this is God in a box. And, and the, the, they were saying, look, the Hebrews have brought their god in the box And he's entered into the camp. And then they remembered, oh, this God that's in this box, he's a powerful God. We heard what he did to the Egyptians. We are in big trouble. And so it looks like the text is preparing us for an Israelite victory. The Israelites are all pumped up. The Philistines are shaking in their boots. And then it says, the Philistines say to each other, take courage and be men. Verse 9, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you, be men and fight. And then we have a very short and surprising description of the battle in verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. It doesn't say anything about Israel fighting, does it? Maybe they didn't. Maybe they thought, we have God. He's in the box here. We don't need to fight. We don't know. But it just says, the Philistines fought, And Israel was defeated. And they fled, just like Deuteronomy said. They fled, every man to his home. There was a very great slaughter. And now it says 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. 
And then we have the Ark of God was captured. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, had died. We knew that was coming, didn't we? Do you remember back in chapter 2, we learned that Hophni and Phinehas were going to die on the same day. But now something even more tragic for the nation happened. The ark was captured. And now the story slows down a little bit. It covers the battle in basically a sentence. And now it slows down, and we go back to Shiloh, and we have Eli. He's 98 years old. Do you remember he wasn't able to see very well? Now he's completely blind. And it's a pathetic, pathetic sort of situation. It says that Eli, in verse 13, was sitting on his seat by the road. What was he doing? He was watching. And so we have the pathetic image of a a blind man watching. A man who can't see, but he's watching. And it says, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And then we have this back and forth. A young man comes into the city Eli's there watching. He doesn't see him come in, but he hears the city in an uproar. And then he calls for the man. And he said, how did it go? And the man gives him the story. And it says, now Eli was 98 years old. His eyes were set so he couldn't see. And the man breathlessly tells him, I came from the battle and this is what happened. It says, Israel has fled. Verse 17, before the Philistines, a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. And then it says, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, that was it. Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, broke his neck from the fall. He was old, he was heavy, and it said he died that day. And it said he judged Israel 40 years, a whole generation. He was the one who had led Israel. Now, this final scene of of Eli, it, it shows him not so much as a wicked man, but as a weak man. It looks like his heart was in the right place. His heart was at the ark of God. His heart was with that that, that symbol of the presence of God. And yet he had failed as a father and as a leader, but it looks like he was, in his last last moments, he was focused on on the, the presence of God among the people. Well, the... The news also caused or led to another death. He had a daughter-in-law who was the wife of Phineas. Remember, Phineas had just died. She was pregnant. She was about to give birth. She also hears the news of the ark, verse 19. Her father-in-law, he heard that she had ju- he had just died. She heard that her husband had just died. And so she went into labor. And she didn't survive labor. But the women were trying to cheer her up and said, it's okay, don't be afraid, you've given birth to a son. But she didn't pay any attention, she didn't answer. And with her dying breath, she named the boy Ichabod. Now, it's not exactly clear what Ichabod means. Kabod in Hebrew is, is heaviness, weightiness, or glory. And so this is the denial of that. It means either no glory or it means where's the glory? It may be a question. But she explained it. She said because the glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and her father-in-law and her husband were dead. And then in verse 22, she actually focuses on the ark. The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Now, It was a tragedy that the ark was gone 
But the loss of the ark was really just symbolic. The ark was symbolic of God's presence, and now the absence of the ark was symbolic of God's absence. You see, they had gotten it backwards. They thought that God was absent because the ark was gone, but it was the other way around. It was the ark was gone because God was absent. God had turned against his people because they, uh, through the priesthood, had not been faithful. They had not honored him. So the disappearance of the ark and the disappearance of the old priesthood points to the fact that that God had turned against his people because his his people had turned against him. But it it also indicates that this ark wasn't exactly necessary. It was given to Moses, this vision of the ark on on Mount Sinai. It was God's idea to do this, but it wasn't necessary. It was was a pointer. It was a symbol. It was a a message to the people, but it wasn't necessary. Now, I don't want to steal all the, the, uh, the thunder from the next chapters about what happened to this ark, but if we go on in the history of of the, the people of God, eventually the ark disappeared for good. And Raiders of the Lost Ark got that right. <laughs> that the ark had disappeared at some point. We don't know exactly when. Maybe when the Babylonians came and, and destroyed the temple. But it disappeared. And it's never been found again. And if true faith depended on that box well then, true faith would have no hope because the box is gone. And the fact way back in 1 Samuel that that God could allow this box to be taken by the enemy and then eventually be taken by some other enemy and, and disappear from the face of the earth, there's a message in there that it's not about the box. It's not about this outward form. This is a temporary measure. It's an object lesson that is pointing to something beyond. The, the temple, the, the articles in the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the sacrifices, the priesthood, all of the things that were related to it were symbolic. They were messages. They were object lessons. They were never meant to be the permanent way of approaching God. Imagine, if they were the only way to get to God, and then the enemy grabs it and carries it off. Now what? How do we get to God? Or if another enemy knocks the whole thing down and, and carries it off and maybe melts it down for gold, whoever, whoever, who knows what happened to it. If that were the only way to get to God, then we would all be in big trouble. Nobody could get to God. But we read, going back to Hebrews, that it was temporary. It was pointing forward. In Hebrews 9, 11, it says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify or purify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
So what do we have now, folks? We have the reality. We have the reality, the, the shadows, the forms, they, they, they faded away. They've been lost because they served their purpose in their day. And now we have the reality. But if we have the reality, then the message of this text stands for us. Let our faith be a living reality. You see, it, it's still a danger for, for the people of God to hold on to, to outward conformity to forms and rituals and customs instead of having a living faith in our lives. And so that's the challenge of the text. On the one hand, it says these things aren't necessary because we have the reality Christ has come. He has given himself. He is the way to God, the way, the truth, and the life. Go to God through him and only through him. And because he's the only way, the way is open to all humans who would come to him in faith. And at the same time, having come to him in faith, let's, let's make sure that our, our faith is not simply a question of conformity to outward things. There's, there's a lot of talk about the great de-churching, the great de-churching. And this is being picked up in, in newspapers. I, I read about it in The Economist magazine and The Wall Street Journal, and you can read about the great de-churching. And what happened? People are abandoning church in the West. And not all of them, not all of them, but some of them are saying this. They're saying, you know, during COVID, I stopped going, and I realized it didn't make any difference. I realized that I didn't really believe this after all. I realized that I just had some habits that carried me along for a while. And now I realize that I don't need those customs and habits any longer. Now, it would have been much better had they said, I realize that it wasn't a reality, but I want that reality. I realize that Christ wasn't real to me, but I want Christ to be real to me. That would have been a much, a much more positive response. But however that might be, we have an opportunity, and we also have a challenge. If those who have said, okay, we don't want the, just the outward conformity anymore, that's all we had, and we're not doing that anymore. Well, those of us who are left, may our faith that is exercised here and out in our worlds and in our families and wherever it might be, not be that, not be a mere conformity with, with habits that we've had for years or decades, but rather a living reality showing itself in faith toward Jesus Christ, love towards God, and love towards neighbor. Let's pray. Our God, we recognize in all of us that that ability just to hold on to, to outward things, to look better than we really are. Jesus denounced the religious leaders of his day for that. You, in the time of Samuel, took out Eli and Hophni and Phinehas because of that, that outward religiosity that was not matched, at least in the case of the two boys, with a reality in their lives. And we pray, O oh God, that we would not be in that category, but rather that we here in Florida Coast Church and the other churches around here and the other churches around the world, Lord, that we would be characterized by genuine faith, hope, and love. We thank you, O God, that we live in the time of the reality. We don't have to have certain rituals or certain objects in order to get to you. But we thank you that we can come to you as your people through faith in Christ. 
that the door is open to all who would come. And I pray that we would all come, that we would all remain, and that as we live out our lives in this world, that the genuineness of our faith would be evident to all for the glory of Christ and for the salvation of many. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.